Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. This is the Library Love Fest podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be interviewing Matt Ruff, the beloved award-winning author of novels such as Lovecraft Country, The Mirage, Bad Monkeys, and more. Uh, Matt's coming to us live from Seattle. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you much for having me. And thanks for that great intro. Oh, I try. I try. You deserve it. Um, so your next novel is 88 Names, which is coming March 17th of next year. Uh, would you mind giving listeners kind of a, just an overview of the novel? So it's set about 20 years in the future at a point when virtual reality technology has finally started living up to the hype, you know, the promise we've we've had all these years. And uh the protagonist is named John Chu, and he's what's known as a Sherpa, as sort of a paid freelance guide to online role-playing games. And so the way this works is if you're a, say you're a busy professional and uh, you want to play the, the futuristic equivalent of World of Warcraft, but you don't have hundreds of hours to devote to, you know, leveling up your elven paladin. So what you can do, you can pay John Chu a fee and he will provide you with a ready-made character with cool weapons and armor and uh, a bunch of expert teammates to come with you and essentially cater a night's adventure for you in cyberspace. And this story is about he gets a new client who goes by the pseudonym Mr. Jones, uh, who claims to be a wealthy, famous person with powerful enemies. And uh, he's offering a, a crazy amount of money to hire Chu as sort of his personal guide to the world of virtual reality gaming. So it's it's like a dream assignment, but as the as the the tour gets underway, Chu begins to suspect that this might actually be North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who's you know interested in VR for reasons that have nothing to do with entertainment. So that's the the basic setup and the the other thing about the novel is that that much of it takes place entirely online in environments where you you have total control over how you look and sound. And many of the people who Chu interacts with, not just Mr. Jones, but his coworkers and even his ex-girlfriend are people he's never actually met in real life. And you know, if people tell you their names, you can look them up on social media and and sort of compare what's there to what they present when you when you meet them online. But of course, social media can lie too. So it's this constant guessing game of who am I really dealing with and how well do I actually know them. So that's the that's the short version. And I love the again when you have these characters have this degree of control over how they're viewed and what information is allowed to be seen that triggers some very interesting storylines within this novel and we'll get into that a little bit um but for listeners at home we're recording this remotely and i'm in new york matt you're in seattle and matt you mentioned your rig is an alienware computer which is like a computer for those who aren't familiar that's like they produce very serious gaming hardware so matt am i right to assume you are in fact a gamer Yes, I, I have to plead guilty. That is one of my favorite forms of procrastination. <laughs> procrastination. But I mean, would you say 
it's a it's still a productive pastime in a way right like i think there's you know that that kind of traditional like parent scolding where you know you're you're rotting your brain out with video games what are your thoughts on that well, I mean, whether it's rotting my brain or not, I mean, it is, it is certainly, it's certainly a good way to entertain myself. And, and because a lot of my, my writing work is done with just me talking to myself or thinking to myself, it's fine if I'm doing other things at the time. But yeah, I am, I am a, you know, I, I, I was an only child. Uh, I was a big board gamer as a kid, but for me, because I was playing alone, it was, it was not so much competitive as almost a narrative form of play where if you're you know if you're playing both sides of a a war game or or a more traditional board game it's as much about telling a story as it is about you know competing i also you know i was sort of there at the when video games first began to be a thing and fortunately for my productivity i think uh, I, i could never afford the latest technology so when you know when online role-playing games first became a thing around the turn of the century, uh, I, I did not have a good enough internet connection to, you know, play World of Warcraft, which is great because you can you can sink weeks mm-hmm. or, you know, months of your life into that. But what I would often do is like read about it and imagine what it would be like to be able to play, which I guess kind of laid the groundwork for for this novel in a way. And, you know, the 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 whole concept of Sherpas drew out of a real-life phenomenon called gold farming where almost as soon as these online role-playing games came into existence, there were, there were these side economies where players would sell virtual gold and virtual items to other players for real world money. And it just sort of fascinated me reading about that and thinking about it. And and of course, once the word got out that you could make money doing this, there were people who began playing the game specifically so they could make money, not because Mm -hmm. they necessarily enjoyed spending hours and weeks in, in fantasy land. So it's, it's, I suppose it is, it is productive in that sense. And that like everything else in my life, it's a source of ideas, but it's also important if I want to get work done, not to go online until after I've gotten some writing done in the morning. Fair enough. Um, and that's funny when you talk about gold farming, because you obviously you are familiar and I think you might even be friends with another revered Seattle based author, Neil Stevenson, who's been a big supporter of your work and in, in his novels, he's talked about gold farming. You two even share the same editor. Did you yeah. and Neil talk at all about this novel or the futuristic aspects of the book? Neil and I will talk shop sometimes. And, you know, if I have a technical question that I need answering about cryptography or about some other obscure subject, Neil can often either answer it for me or point me in the direction of someone who can answer it. But it's funny, we don't really get into deep dives on on the stuff we're working on, because I think in part, our sensibilities are kind of different. Neil is like a gentleman engineer. He likes really getting down into the weeds and and understanding the nuts and bolts of systems and how they work. And he's very disciplined about that. Um, I'm more of a magpie. I, you know, collecting shiny objects from different disciplines and fitting them together to tell a sort of creative tall tale. So you could kind of think of me as a high functioning conspiracy theorist. And um, so, you know, when I study technical details, it's often not because I want to get perfect accuracy, but because I want to know how to get you to suspend your disbelief and play along with me, even as I'm telling you something that is patently untrue or, or could never happen. So so it's a very different approach. And I, I don't know, I think there's an extent to which I don't think Neil and I could really help each other in what we're doing, because because his, his idea of the way to tell the story would be very different from mine, I think. And it's a beautiful thing what you both are doing, and you both have dedicated 
you know, passionate fans, rightfully so. Um, and I, I've interviewed Neil. I'm now lucky enough to interview you. I love both your work. So thank you again. Well, thank you. Um, well, and, and I guess also speaking about virtual reality and again, the degree that people have control over, you know, their identities, what's true, what's not. When you started writing this book, did any of today's current events, like I think of Facebook, Russia, fake news, I especially think about deep fakes, which I think is fascinating. Did those storylines influence you at all? Like what was that nagging feeling that brought you to write this book? I mean, this this story has sort of been percolating in my head for a long time, but certainly it, it's the the a lot of the, the sort of general concerns people have about life online or, or, you know, about, you know, how do you know who you're dealing with and, and the way in which the immediacy of Twitter can sort of fuel people's anxiety or get them to react to stuff or overreact to things was certainly a part of that. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I was trying not to be driven too much by, by current events because I wanted to, uh, tell a more thoughtful story that would, would still be interesting to read like 10 or 20 years from now when our obsessions are going to be totally different. So it's less about us responding to a specific moment, I think, than just sort of looking at this is the world that we're going to live in now. We're going to have the internet and and what are like the ongoing themes that, that are going to be a part of that. Interesting. And you know, with your background, I'm going to read this little paragraph that you gave this speech in 2010. This is 2010 at Calvin College. Um, it's an about your background. So I'm going to read this quickly and ask you about it. So you said, so this is the environment in which I began teaching myself how to tell stories. And it's no real surprise that one of the most persistent themes in my writing is what you might call close quarters multiculturalism. Characters from different backgrounds, different faiths and philosophies different worldviews being thrown together in the same space, sometimes even in the same head and having to figure out how to get along. Could you provide some context for that quote and uh, how it informs your writing? So I, I, my, my father was a Lutheran minister. My mother was a, my, my dad was from the Midwest. My mother was a missionary's daughter who was born in Brazil and grew up in Argentina during the, the Peron era and only emigrated to the United States in, in her late 20s, and, um, or her early 20s. So our house was sort of in New York City, was Ellis Island for uh, all of the South American relatives coming up. So we were never, it was never just me and my mom and my dad in the house. There was always at least one other relative with us. And these were religious people. And again, mom's family was a missionary family, so they loved to argue about stuff. And so it it's like growing up in this this theological debate society. And one of the things that gave me is the the sort of ability to deal at close quarters with people who don't agree with me, are never going to agree with me, and are very vociferous about, you know, their point of view and why they're right and you're wrong and you're going to hell because you're wrong. So you'll have these fights, but then you've still got to live with people and get on with them and and love them because they're your family. So I, I have probably from that, I have a, a different attitude towards diversity generally, where I, there's a phenomenon, especially now, and again, I think this is fed in part by the immediacy of the online world, where people want to just, if, if somebody is, is too far away from what you believe, they just want to make them go away or wish them into non-existence or deplatform them. And it's certainly fine to not want to deal with somebody if they bug you, but they don't cease to exist just because you decide that their their point of view is worthless. You're still going to share a planet with them. And so that's, to me, that's, a, that's an, a thing that has to be grappled with. It's not just about winning the argument. It's about after you've won the argument, 
how do you continue to get on with people who don't agree that you've won the argument and continue to hold the views they hold? So that that's driven a lot of my writing. And then also my, you know, whereas my mother was sort of into, into having good fights and arguments, my dad was a hospital chaplain. So he was really like a religious psychologist. His job was to listen to people and counsel them. And so from him, I got the sort of tools to sort of try to understand people who, you know, initially I don't get where they're coming from, but to me, that's an interesting challenge. If I don't understand why somebody believes what they believe, I want to see what it's like to get inside their head and see the world from their point of view. And fiction is a great vehicle to do that. Um, so all of that is sort of folded into my writing. Um, and I have to say this, this particular novel was a bit less of a challenge than my two previous ones, um, because I feel like the online gaming community is is sort of more like my home turf so it was less of a stretch to sort of put myself into john chu's headspace um i think what i what i was working harder on with this novel was not understanding the 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 milieu or the the community but conveying it in a way that would be both uh, you know interesting and accessible to even to people who are not video gamers or to readers who you know I'm sure there are actually some people who aren't on Twitter all day because they've got better things to do. So you don't have to be very online, I hope, to to get something from 88 Names. So in this case, I guess I'm kind of the, the tour guide. And I think you do provide a very accessible entryway to this world and kind of the promise that it, it delivers. Because as you said, there's you write about and through the voices of a very diverse set of characters throughout you know your your backlist and within this novel but also it kind of shrinks the world in, in that John Chu and his staff his his um his fellow sherpas they're from all over the place they're all vastly different but they're kind of you know brought closer together through this virtual world and just the way that you embody their voices i found really fascinating um and i guess when you talk about the community could you talk about like the gaming community and and how you see that like Explain that maybe for listeners. I, I mean, what's what's fascinating about it, and this really applies to the internet in general, is if you if you let it, the the internet can introduce you to people who you otherwise would never cross paths with and never, uh, you know, never learn about, and and that's so to me, that's like it's amazing. I would say, actually, in my case, it's less and it's less about gaming because when I game online, I still tend to gravitate towards solitary activities. I, I don't, like when I play World of Warcraft, I usually go solo. I, I generally don't party up with people. So gaming is still more of a solitary activity, but what, what the internet does allow me to do by reading, you know, points of view or interacting with people on Twitter or in, in other venues where there's, there's maybe a little more bandwidth to have longer conversations, it just exposes me to points of view and to ways of thinking that I, I might not otherwise come across. So, and I, I think that's that's part of what you know, part of what's captured in eighty eight names. I hope is that yeah, that that if you you know he's yeah. So you've got John Chu, who's he's American. His mother works for the military, and then uh, he's got uh, one of his employees, Jolene, is a is a fifty year old black woman who works for a, a law firm in Colorado Springs, and then there's a gal named Anya who is a South American living down in Paraná, and she's a, she's a former Olympic hopeful who was badly injured in an accident and now basically lives entirely online because she's, she's largely paralyzed. Um, and then there's a, another guy, Ray Wilson, who 
presents himself as a, a white guy in his 30s, but he has no social media presence. So John Chi really can't tell for sure who he who or what he is, but he's very good at his job. So John Chi doesn't particularly care. So you've got these characters from all over the world and these all different walks of life. And where else but the internet would, you know, a 50-year-old professional from Colorado and a, you know, a 21-year-old would-be entrepreneur from San Francisco and a paralyzed Olympic person from, from Argentina, where would they all get together and hang out for extended periods and exchange ideas and stuff other than on the internet? And I think that's that's really cool that you're able to do that now. But you do have to be open to it and be willing to not immediately freak out when somebody does or says something that, that doesn't necessarily follow the rules of etiquette where you're from. And I think that's, that's kind of the downside uh, to the internet is that it also encourages people to, to react very quickly to stuff instead of just listen and pay attention and really get to know folks. And all the more so in times like these, I think, when when a lot of people are just really worried about the state of the world, that sort of amplifies that anxiety that makes them want to react that way. Absolutely. Um, now, and I, I know you, again, you mentioned you either play, you know, solo within these massively multiplayer online role-playing games, or you're into the more like story-driven games. And I think it's interesting, I personally don't game that much, but what I've noticed is, one, game budget's have ballooned to an extreme amount and they're very cinematic they're like high budget essentially like you could think of like a hollywood feature film that's oh yeah they they occupy a lot of the same entertainment space as as hollywood does and yeah Mm -hmm. it's the high-end games can be as expensive or more so because Mm -hmm. with a movie you make it and then it's done but with something like the the, you know world of warcraft it's persistent you've got to keep the servers up and running for as long Mm -hmm. as the game and producing new content so it's almost like running a movie studio in a sense Yes. And I mean, so I know you dabbled in tar- in terms of like tabletop games. Have, are you interested in writing storylines for video games? Is that something you're intrigued by? In a weird way. I mean, I, I did, I did at one point, uh, I, I sort of tried out as, as I guess a kind of script doctor for one of the Halo sequels. They were, they were looking for some, you know, they were looking to bring in professional writers for, uh, for Halo to punch up the script. And that was an interesting experience because I'm very much a perfectionist with my own work. And it was, it was kind of weirdly liberating to take this, this ready-made, like the dialogue was already written and the, and the cutscenes and what was going to happen in the game. And so it was more of like going into something that somebody else had already done the heavy lifting on and like, how can I make this better? And I, there's probably an alternate universe where I could have done that as a primary career, but um yeah, I think the 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 downside again of of these massive budgets is that you, you, it's really much harder now to make a solo effort. Like I, I I would be if I were if I were a video game designer, I would probably want to be able to to write the whole game myself. And there really aren't any genres of game that that are lucrative now where that's that's really possible. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose some of the smaller casual games, if you really know how to program, you could do that on your own. But in general. Um, the more cinematic stuff. I mean, you, if you look at the the credits at the end of the game, it's like they, they employ <laughs> as many people as a Marvel movie. And so in a certain way, that's unfortunate because it, it, it limits the, the degree that to which you can be experimental. If it's one person, you know, tinkering in their, in their garage alone or one person writing a novel, you can, you can go places that 
people with Hollywood sized budgets would be scared to go. And when I first started out, when computers, you know, like my first computer I ever owned was a, a TRS 80 <laughs> from Radio Shack with, I think, 48 kilobytes of RAM, not, not 48 oh, wow. megabytes, 48 <laughs> kilobytes. And the kinds of games you, you could, you could, one person really could sit down and write in, you know, a, a popular game for those. And I, I tried my hand at some of that. Um, but then the, the technology got better. And now I, I just, yeah, I, I would need to work for somebody else. And I don't think I really want to do that. I want to, I want to do my own thing, but we get a sampling of it in the book, though. We do get a. I, I just think of the point and click where where John is in the point and click game. And I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the uh, interactive fiction game. Yeah. Well, and and that's the other thing. In a way, this book is my my version of that. I I got to write you know about these fictional games that that you know. So I I got to design the games kind of in 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 the realm of fiction in the realm of prose rather than having to to do them for real. So. Yeah. Now, and you've talked about Stephen King being an inspiration for your writing. And I think, you know, people who read genre fiction, they know this, but maybe for those outside looking in, I think, you know, the the strength of character and the internal psychology of the characters that occupy, like whether it's Stephen King's writing or your own, yeah. it's still so character driven. And that's what gives way. I mean, you always have, we have these great concepts that we've discussed, whether it's you or Neil Stevenson or you know, Stephen King. But it is ultimately the characters that drive your writing and make it so special. Do you have any other genre saints that you that you like to read and any of those that might have inspired you for 88 Names? Well, I should name check William Gibson, obviously. I mean, he kind of mm. got there. Well, he probably he would say he didn't get there first. But I would say for me, like Neuromancer was like the first the first novel that really captured this sort of that sort of essence of, of life in, in cyberspace. I mean, he did coin the phrase and I'm sure he could point to earlier writers that influenced him that, that kind of paved the way. Um, I'm also a big fan of John Crowley. Um, the, the, there's a, there's a reference in, in 88 names to the art of memory, which is basically in memory palaces, which is this very old thing that, uh, you know, Greek and, and Roman rhetoricians, they would build these, these, these buildings in their heads and, and sort of imaginary spaces in their heads and populate them with mnemonic images. And so like, imagine you're, you've got to give a speech and you don't have PowerPoint yet. So what you do is like, you imagine a long hallway and, and a different statue representing everything you want to talk, talk about. And then as you're speaking, you sort of mentally project yourself through the space and, the statues that you see remind you what the next point is. And so this was, this was a thing that people used to do and now has kind of been replicated in virtual reality and in, in which we're all able to build these, these sort of palaces of imagination. Um, and that's something I first heard about through John Crowley's writing. And he's, he's another source of just, he's a beautiful linguist. He's got a, a lot of really wonderful language and, and poetry in his work. Um, and he's really, he's, he's more of a writer's writer and that a lot of writers I know know about him, but he's, he's never really gotten the wide readership I feel like he deserves. So he's been a big influence on me. And then I, I would also name check Charlie Jackson. She's somebody I reread obsessively. And I know she's, she's regarded more of a, as a horror writer. So she, she probably doesn't directly influence 88 names as much, but I've, I've just always loved her way of writing about i'm less of a misanthrope than her but i love her portraits of awful people interacting with each other <laughs> I, I i really 
find that quite cool. And there's a thing Stephen King said about her once too, is that she was someone who never needed to raise her voice. She's someone I, I think is, is good to read, to study how to convey things with subtlety, um, you, you know, how to, how to, whether it's fear and dread or uh, some you know, other emotions without necessarily hitting readers over the head. She does an amazing, she's somebody who writes very short, concise books, but that, that just seems so rich. So so those would be my, I guess, the ones I would name check. All right. Excellent. Um, all right. And then I guess just one last thing, Matt. So some pretty big news. Your 2016 novel Lovecraft Country is being adapted into an HBO series. J.J. Abrams is involved, Jordan Peele, Misha Green. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's 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 just amazing. I mean, I'm still it's it's the new it's two year old news now, but I'm still bouncing off the walls about it. Um <laughs> For once, I, I appear to have hit the zeitgeist just right. Um, you know, after Lovecraft Country came out, there was an unusual amount of interest from Hollywood. And one day I got a call from my CA agent and he said, you know, uh, Jordan Peele wants to talk to you. And, and he says, you know, I, Jordan's mostly known for comedy, but apparently he wants to break into horror. So, you know, do you want to talk to him? And I'm like, sure, I'm happy to. And, uh, you know, of course, this was this was before Get Out happened um mm-hmm. so i and i got on the phone with with jordan and with misha green and actually at that time i was more excited talking to misha because she had done underground um which is basically the the great escape set on a slave plantation it was a great tv series that was unfortunately canceled way too soon so at the time i was like i, I definitely knew she would be able to 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 not only do a good job with the story but pitch it to hopefully pitch it to TV or film people in a way that, that wouldn't frighten them off. But it was a great conversation with, with both of them. It's one of those rare cases where you're talking to people from Hollywood and you realize you're all talking about the exact same story. So it was, you know, it was like, this is great. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll work together. And then it was probably only a week or two after that, that the first trailer for get out dropped. And I saw that and I started laughing because I was like, Oh, okay. I know why Jordan Peele is interested in Lovecraft mm-hmm. country. We're definitely on the same wavelength. And, uh, it was, it was largely, I think the success of get out plus, you know, JJ Abrams hovering in the background, like God that, that <laughs> helped get the, the series picked up by HBO. And, and it was immediately like, usually you have to do a pilot and see what they think. And in this case, they ordered it direct to series, which meant it was definitely going to go on the air and they were going to do the whole first season. So, so yeah, it's been a wild ride and it's been very exciting. And, um, and the main thing for me is that it just gives me the freedom to keep doing the kinds of novels I want to do and, and following weird subjects and not having to worry about things like paying rent or, you know, health insurance, other little things like that. So it's, it's, it's great. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the, on the TV. You and me both. Um, that's so exciting. And again, thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. Um, 88 Names, again, is going on sale March 17th next year. Uh, you can get the eGalley now on Edelweiss if you're a librarian. So just let me know. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.